0: Today on Peace Talks Radio, the story of a school clerk who, trapped in the office with a fully armed man threatening to kill himself and others, managed to help talk him into surrendering to police without anyone getting hurt.
1: Okay, stay on the line with me now. Where are you? I'm in the front office. Oh, he just went outside and started shooting.
2: So I'm just telling him about myself, you know, and what I'm going through and how I tried to commit suicide myself and how I didn't think life was worth living living for. It's
1: going to be all right, sweet. I just want you to know that I love you, though, Okay. And I'm proud of you. That's a good thing that you've just given up and don't worry about it. We all go through something in life.
0: Antoinette Tuff tells her own story to us and then more conversation about the power of nonviolent communication to help bridge the gap in interpersonal dialogue.
3: It allows us to see anger and rage not as the acts of an evil person, but as a huge opportunity for compassion.
0: That's all today on Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Whether it's the search for inner peace, or exploring ways to resolve and reduce conflict between us and others, in our homes, workplaces, neighborhoods, country, or between nations. We consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. Today, the story of a person who, quite unexpectedly, wound up diffusing a conflict situation that appeared to be heading down an all-too-familiar path. August twentieth, two 2013, school clerk Antoinette Tuff was at her job at a suburban Atlanta elementary school of 800 students. She was only temporarily filling in at the front office over lunchtime when an agitated 20-year-old man carrying an AK-47 semi-automatic rifle and hundreds of rounds of ammunition came in threatening to open fire. Now, you may not remember this story because it only made news for about a day or two. There were no deaths. There was no community in mourning no reporters camping out for funerals a week later, and there was no shooter turning the gun on himself or a good guy with a gun finishing the suspect off. There was, however, Antoinette Tuff, the 46-year-old school clerk there, using calm words, empathy, and compassion, while most of the time having an open line to the 911 operator and truly being in the line of fire herself.
1: Okay, stand on the line with me now. Where are you? I'm in the front office. Oh, he just went outside and started shooting. Okay. Oh, can I run? What do you, can you get somewhere safe? Yeah, I got to go. No, he's going to see me
2: running and call me back. Oh, hold on. And so I wanted to go. I had a chance to go. I even had a chance to run. But I knew if I did that, he was going to go and start just spraying bullets everywhere. And I'm going to be honest with you, when I was sitting there, I wanted to get up so bad, but God wouldn't even allow my feet to move. I couldn't even move.
0: What you just heard was several minutes into this incident, the gunman firing his first few shots out the front door of the school. Before all this went down, Antoinette Tuff was already not having an easy time of it. In fact, let's get the full context and back this whole thing up about five hours.
2: Well, August the 20th of 2013, Paul, I got up just like anybody else, a normal day for me. Um, I got up and had my prayer and devotional time with God that morning and fixed my son his breakfast, lunch and dinner before I left to go to the elementary school where I worked. My husband of 33 years, the man I had been with since I was 13 years old, had told me months before that that he was having an affair with another woman. Mm -hmm. So during my devotional time, I am sitting there crying out to God to ask him what to do and how do I do that?
0: You were actually feeling like you were in the middle of your own emotional crisis at this time in your life.
2: Huh? Well, I was already in the middle of it. I had already tried to commit suicide more than one time during that time. Mm-hmm. So I was already in the middle of a crisis myself, um, not feeling like there was anything that was worth living for. And so as I'm sitting there having time and trying to get myself together so that I can be able to feed my son who was uh, multiple disabled. He's um, blind and in a wheelchair, and he has charcot tooth disease. And for those who do not know what that means, it's when the nerves in your body are deteriorating, and there's nothing you can do about it.
0: How old's your boy?
2: My son is 22 years old.
0: So you were trying to get him ready to go and getting yourself ready to go, and uh, you uh, head on into uh, uh, your school that day.
2: Now and I'm at work. My principal comes in and asks me if I can fill in for the secretary for lunch. And so as I'm sitting there, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what to do, you know, trying to close out things and everything to get the year started. And in comes a phone call. It's the bank saying to me that I had seven days to come up with $14,000 unless I was going to lose my car. So here I am now all in emotions again, and I get another phone call, and it's the secretary. She wants to know where am I because I am now late to come and relieve her for lunch. And so as I go to now go to relieve her, a teacher comes to the door and asks me if I can help her with her paperwork. And so as I tell her that I need to go to the front office to relieve the secretary, we go up and then she goes and we sit down and start helping her with her paperwork as the secretary leaves and the parent. And as we sit in there, in comes the gunman, dressed in all black, disturbed young man, allowing us all to know that we're going to die today. He comes in with his AK-47 already drawn, with his book bag on his back, unstable in all his ways, with fear and death in his eyes. So he now goes and tells the teacher to go and let everyone know that he's in the building. And so the teacher leaves, and she goes through the teacher's lounge that's on the other side of the wall. See, the gunman didn't know that there was teachers in there and students in there during their planning time. And so he hears all this commotion, and he now gets enraged and gets upset. So he goes now to the main door that leads out to the school where everyone is. And he draws his weapon and now get ready to start shooting. And so I say to him, no, come back in here. Come back in here. They're only doing what you told them to do. You told them to go out and let everybody know that you're here. And so they're only doing that. He wants to actually start shooting. And so I'm telling him, no, we're not going to do that today. Nope. Come back in here. Come back in here. So he then comes back in the room with me, agitated. And he now gets the chair and props open the front door. And so then he comes back in going to and fro, angry, and in comes the cafeteria manager. He comes in, but he did not see the gunman. He comes in and does his routine to put his things into the mail for the delivery, and the gunman says to him, get behind the counter with me. He doesn't move fast. He moves very slow, and the gunman gets agitated, and he fires his first shot feet away from us. And the bullet is ricocheting everywhere. And as I'm sitting there, I am praying, God, please help us. Don't let this bullet hit anybody. Let us be able to be okay. You know, I'm having a conversation with God the whole time. Of, what do I do? What do I say? Because I know that every word that perceived out of my mouth can be life or death. For me, over 870 students, parents and teachers, and even the gunmen on that day. And so as we're now standing there, and he's going to and fro, the cafeteria manager now runs behind the counter where I am, holding his heart. And the gunman tells him to go and let everybody know that he's in the building. And then as the cafeteria manager leaves, he goes back outside and shoots in the community again. He comes back inside and tells me to call 911 the TV station to let everybody know that he is in the building.
1: Mikhail, police, what's addressing your emergency? Yes, ma'am. I'm on 2nd Avenue in the school, and the gentleman said tell them to hold down. The police officers are coming, and he said he's gonna start shooting, so tell them to back off. Okay, one moment. Do not let anybody in the building, including the police. Do not let anybody in the building, including the police. Put the oh. phone down. Okay, she said that she's she's getting a police now to tell him to back off for you, okay? Tell them to stop all movement. Okay. Okay. Stop all movement now. Stop all movement now on the ground. Stop all movement on the ground. Not 30, we're not If it's not an emergency, please do not use the radio. If it's not an emergency, do not use the radio. Are you talking to the shooter? That's what he's telling me to tell them on the radio. Okay. Now, what did you want me to tell her, sir?
2: And as I'm talking to 911, he now tells me to hang up and call the news station.
1: Okay, he tells me, put your home, call the news, ma'am.
2: Okay. And so I called the news station. I couldn't even think of a news station. So I asked him, do you know a number? And he says yes, but I said, okay, I look it up on the internet. And so I called the news station, and then he's now telling me demands of what he wants me to do and what he wants me to tell them. And so then he tells me to hang up the phone. But what I did is I actually hung up the phone from the news station, and I had the 911 operator on hold.
1: Hello, ma'am? Okay, he said... He said to tell them to back off. He doesn't want the kids. He wants the police. So back off. And and what else, sir? He said he don't care if he's down. He don't have nothing to live for. And he said he's not mentally stable. Okay, stay on the line with me, okay? Put the phone down if you have to, but don't put it on
2: hold so I can't hear. Okay. So I put the phone where he could not see it.
0: You're allowing the operator to hear the conversation.
2: Right. I'm allowing the nine operator to have eyes and ears on the inside so that she can know what's actually going on. And as he's doing things and as he's saying things to me and giving me demands, I'm allowing them to know what he's saying, what he's doing. She
1: said he said, Send in one of your radios with an unarmed officer. Okay. She said, okay, she's getting ready to tell them or somewhere that he, he can talk to the police. He said, but if they come on, he's going to start shooting again. Okay. Only one officer. Okay. She said, he said, if you have to go ahead and evacuate them homes right there in the front of the building.
0: About a minute goes by with no sound or communication from Antoinette Tuff in the office with the shooter.
2: And so now he now goes in, because he's now emptied his gun, and he goes and gets the book bag. Well, see, I didn't know what was in the book bag, but first I didn't see it like that. And so he gets the book bag, and he now sits in front of me and pulls out all of these bullets. I had never seen bullets before. He pulls out all these bullets, he pulls out all of these magazines, and he starts loading them right there in front of me.
0: Now, Antoinette, let me insert a question here. Um, you've been with this fellow now for a number of minutes, and I know things were going really fast. but uh, And even in retrospect, uh, were you getting some impressions about whether he was vulnerable enough to be— uh, approached uh to be talked with um what were your impressions about his resolve and his uh, state of mind were you making some uh, calculations about that
2: no because he did not allow me to know that i was reaching him he did not allow me to know that he was listening to me he didn't actually communicate with me at all the only thing he did was continue to give me demands and all i did was just. Continue to talk to him, ask God what to say and how to say it, and then make sure that I was saying exactly what I thought God was telling me to say at that moment. So I didn't have, he didn't allow me to know that what I was saying was reaching him at all.
0: So you are engaging him and uh, he's uh, about to reload. Um, So then what happened?
2: So now he's reloading the gun and now he puts all the bullets and all of the magazines in his pockets. So now he's loading up to go and do World War II. He now goes and calls his family members and everything to let them know what he's doing and what's going on to give his last goodbyes and everything.
0: He's making phone calls to family?
2: You're on the phone with a relative? Yeah, he called his family member. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And what do you remember him saying?
2: He he was just talking to them and let them know that where he's at, what he's doing to turn on their TV so that they can be able to see and that he's going to die and that he's going to kill everybody in the school. All right. That was, you know, pretty much of what he was going to be actually doing. And so I hear them on the other line crying, you know, telling him, don't do it, you know. And so I asked him, did he want me to talk to them? And I told him that it was going to be okay.
1: You want me to tell her to let, that, let her come, sir?
2: You know, let them know that everything's going to be okay. She sounds like she loves you a lot. But he doesn't. He hangs up the phone. And then he goes outside. And he actually now starts shooting. At the police officers. And now they start shooting back at him. So it becomes now. Cowboy and Indians. It means bullets was flying everywhere. And all you could hear was just spraying of just bullets everywhere. And so I am actually sitting by a window. And so I told him. I said come back in here. Bullets don't have no name. They can shoot me just like they shooting you. Come back in here. Come back in here. But he wasn't listening. And then he wound up was bleeding, and I don't know if he got, was bleeding because they had, you know, the bullets was, that shattered the glass. I don't know if he was bleeding from the glass, from the bullet, or I'm not sure what he was bleeding from. And he finally comes back in the room where I am, and he's mad, and he's angry, and he's just walking to and fro.
1: He said he should have just went to the mental hospital instead of doing this because he's not on his medication. Okay. Well, do you you want me to try I can help you. you want me to try you want me to you want to talk to them want me to talk to them and try to okay well let me talk to them and let, let's see if we can work it out so that you don't have to go away with them for a long time no it does matter I can let them know that you have not tried to harm me or do anything with me or anything if you want to but that doesn't make any difference you didn't hit anybody so okay let me ask you this ma'am he didn't hit anybody. He just shot outside the door. If I walk out there with him, if I walk out there with him, if they, so they won't shoot him or anything like that, he wants to give himself up. Is that okay? And they won't shoot him? Yes, and ma'am. And you said he just want to go to the hospital? Okay. She Tell said- him, we, Hold on one moment, okay? okay she said hold on and we're she's going to talk to the police officer and I go out there with you.
2: I'm like, okay, it's going to be okay. And so I'm now telling him my story.
1: Well, don't feel bad, baby. My husband just left me after 33 years. But, yes, you do. I mean, I'm sitting here with you and talking to, talking to you about it. I got a son that's multiple
2: disabled. So I'm just telling him about myself, you know, and what I'm going through and how I try to commit suicide myself and how I didn't think life was worth living, living for. And so then he goes over, and he sits in the chair and says that he's going to go to jail and that, you know, he's shot at the police officers. And now he takes the gun and he's going to shoot himself. And I say to him, you're not doing that today. We're not going to do that. Mm-mm. That's not going to happen. And so he gets agitated and he starts walking and walking. And I just told him, I said, you know, I love you. You know, just give yourself up. It's going to be okay. And so he says to me, you don't understand, I've shot at the police officers, and I've done this, and I've done that, and I tell him it's okay. You know, he tells me that he hadn't taken his medicine, and, you know, and, and you know, and he's going to go to jail for a long time, and that he's on probation, and, and everything. And I'm like, it's okay. It, it, none of it matters. It's all going to be okay.
1: No, you didn't, baby. It's, it's all going to be well. The lady's going to talk to the police. Okay. okay 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 hold on hold on a second okay uh-huh don't don't hang up the phone okay hold on he wants me to go over here to the intercom so hold on for me okay 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 wait a minute so can you talk to the police and let them know that I'm gonna walk out there with him and he wants to give himself up okay I am let me get a okay from them okay okay and, what are you, and you let me know what we need to do he wants me to go on the intercom and let everybody know that he's sorry okay 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 hold on it's okay.
0: Antoinette Tuff talking into the McNair Learning Academy PA system, speaking for the as-yet-unnamed gunman who wanted to tell the school community he was sorry. In a moment, the conversation between Ms. Tuff and the gunman takes more unusual turns as we listen in and talk with Ms. Tuff when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with the story of one person's use of empathy and compassion, apparently having quite a bit to do with thwarting a potential school shooting in 2013. We've been hearing from Antoinette Tuff a bookkeeper who was filling in at the front desk over lunchtime at an Atlanta suburban elementary school of about 800 students on August twentieth, 2013, when a 20-year-old gunman brandishing an AK-47 and 500 rounds of ammunition in his backpack barged into the office. As we've been hearing from both Ms. Tuff herself and the 911 call she placed from the office, she managed to stay cool and talk the gunman to a point where it seemed like he might be willing to give himself up. Before the break, in fact, we heard him ask Miss Tuff to get on the school PA and tell everyone he was sorry. But would he actually surrender his weapon and give himself up to police?
2: And in the midst of me talking to him and saying all of that to him, he goes over and pulls all of the bullets out of his pocket, the magazines, and he takes his gun and everything, including the bottle of water that he brought in there with him, and put it all on a counter beside me. And then he goes and lay on the floor prostrate to give himself up and let the police come in and get him.
0: You just kept saying it'd be all right. You didn't tell him to lay on the floor. There's some turning point here where he's decided that he is going to give himself up. Can you sort of remember that transformation in any more what a detailed way?
2: No, I don't remember all what, what you know, he, he, I didn't tell him to lay down or anything like that. He just really just went over there and laid down. I didn't know he was going to lay down. That was just something that he just started doing. I mean, I was just sitting there praying the whole time, you know, and asking God. So I don't, I don't remember what word I said to him or what was I, you know, I was sitting in the chair, so I wasn't moving. So I don't know what it was that I said that actually resonated with him for him to just give himself up. I don't know what that was
1: put it all up there okay he's put the weapons down yeah so hold on before you come he's putting everything down okay. so he's going to get on the floor so tell him to hold on a minute so let him get everything together he's getting it all together okay tell me when you are ready, and then i tell him to come on in okay okay did you want me to call somebody to talk to somebody for you Okay, we're not gonna hate you, baby. It's a good thing that you that you've given up, so we're not gonna hate you. So let's do it before the helicopters and stuff like that come. So, they hear you hear them. Okay. So you want to go ahead and want me to tell them to come on in now? Okay. He's getting everything out of his pockets now. Okay. Okay. He said the gun may come back and say it's stolen, but if not, he knows the whole story about the gun, and he'll let you all know that. Okay. Okay, he on the ground now with his hands behind the back. Tell the officers don't come in with any gun no come in shooting or anything so they can come on in and I'll buzz them in. Okay. So just stay there calm, don't worry about it. I'm gonna sit right here so they'll see that you try not to harm me, okay? Okay. It's gonna be all right, sweet. I just want you to know that I love you though, okay? And I'm proud of you. That's a good thing that you just given up and don't worry about it. We all go through something in life. No, you don't want that. You're gonna be okay i thought the same thing you know i tried to commit suicide last year after my husband left me but look at me now i'm still working and everything is okay your name is michael what yes. michael hill oh the drum from inner harbor oh okay so you came with the kids that played the drums for the inner harbor oh for red ribbon week so you was actually in there doing all of that with them Oh, how awesome! So that means I've seen. So that means I've seen you before then. Oh, okay. Y'all play them drums and stuff real good. Okay, he said that they can come on in now. And he needs to go to the hospital. Okay. Um, can, he wants to know. Can he get some of his water right quick? Yes, uh, yes, Michael. You said Michael here, right? Okay. Guess what, Michael? My last name is Hill, too. You know, my mom was a Hill. He said, what are y'all waiting for? What's taking them so long to come on? Okay. One moment. She said she's getting to them now. They're coming. So you just got your phone? Okay, that's fine. Tell them to come on. Come on. Okay, he just got his phone. That's all he got is the phone. It's just him. Okay, it's just him. Mm-hmm. Hello? Yes? I'm telling to you something, babe. I ain't never been so skinny all days in my life. Babe, but you did great. Oh, Jesus. You did great. Oh,
0: God. Okay. Now, I know you know this. Uh, In the intervening um, months, some experts in facing violent situations have studied your experience and pointed to several things that you did that you have since said you weren't conscious of. Uh, They said that you, in a way, channeled the young man's mother just in the way you addressed him and offered him a way out, saying that you loved him, calling him sweetie. I mean, these were things that were just occurring to you naturally, but how was it easy for you to uh, draw that up in that moment?
2: Well, see, that's a daily thing for me. I mean... I mean, I I do that for all kids and for all adults. I mean, that's just me. Mm -hmm. For me, it doesn't make any difference who you are. At the end of the day, you're one of God's children. And I just don't use judgment or pass judgments on people. Instead, I like to give compassion and love to everybody. And even though, yes, I could have judged that young man with that AK-47, unstable in all his ways, but at that moment, he needed me to be an angel for him. And I understood that pain because I just had that pain myself. And God sent angels and people that I knew, people that I did not know, to my path to be able to help me to realize that there was life worth living and one more day is worth living for. And so I needed to stand in the gap for that young man that day for him to understand the same thing that God showed me, compassion and love for myself.
0: Now, I know you don't want to discuss the gun policy debate in any detail, but I think people listening to this next question will understand while I'm asking it. If there had been a gun within reach in your office, in a drawer or something, do you think you'd have tried to use it even on that uh, day in August?
2: Well, to be honest with you, Paul, I don't know anything about guns. That was the first time I've ever seen a gun. And I can't really comment on that because I don't know anything about them. And I hope to God that I don't ever have to know anything about him. So I leave that up to the gun experts and what they think that needs to be done.
0: Now, you're asked to talk about this young man and this situation almost every day now. Are you following his progress through the justice system? You think about him a lot?
2: Well, I'm not sure exactly where he's at or anything like that. And I don't actually just follow that every day because that's an emotional overwhelmness for me. Mm -hmm. And so... I try to keep myself in positive spaces and the positive space that I keep myself in now today is that through all of this, I now have formed a nonprofit organization, which is kids on the move for success. And so what I'm doing now is going all over the world, giving out scholarships to kids, allowing kids to be able to know that they too can be prepared for their purpose For them to be able to know that in spite of what they're going through, that they can be able to know that life is worth living for. You know, we have so many of our kids that just don't know a way out. And it goes back to what grandmama used to say. It takes a village to raise a child. And so for me, that is the best thing for me, that I can be able to keep kids from being able to see that they don't have to be a Michael Hill, a gunman. Even when you think that because you make an F that you have failed, but you don't have to, go and make a D the next time or a C. That's a hero to me.
0: We're talking to Antoinette Tuff. She's the co-author of the book, Prepared for a Purpose, the inspiring story of how one woman saved an Atlanta school under siege, and she was that woman, August twentieth, two 2013. Antoinette, you've chosen to take this experience to people. Um, You could have done your moment in the spotlight, done a few television interviews, and you know how TV is. It moves on to the next story and could have returned to your school. But instead, you've written this book, and as you described, you started a a website and a nonprofit and gone on a speaking tour to tell your story. When did you sort of consider all of these options and decide to go this very public route to branch off this story and and get out there with it?
2: Well, really, to be honest with you, I had been doing this way before this incident happened. I had um, actually started with an organization called Cool Girls to be able to bring forth leaders and not followers in girls and encourage and empower girls. So this is something that I was doing long before this incident I am now just at a platform that I can bring it to a higher level to be able to reach more people. And so I've always been in, you know, inspired to be able to actually bring kids forth. That's something I was actually doing with my own kids. And so for me, it didn't just happen August the 20th for me. This is something I have been preparing for for a long time. Um, so now I wrote my book prepared for a purpose so that I can be able to allow people to know that I was just like anyone else. I was an ordinary mom with a husband and kids getting up, making sure that my family was well taken care of. The only thing about it is a woman decided to come into my home. She was no different than Michael Hill. The only difference was she didn't have a gun, but her weapon was just as powerful that me and my family is still having a domino effect from it. So in spite of all of that, I wanted people to know that in spite of what you may be going through, to know that at the end of the day, everything is going to be all right.
0: I can tell that your Christian faith is very strong. And I uh, wonder, though, as you go around the world, how do you reach across uh, the many different faiths as you uh, tell this story and as you encourage people to realize their potential and their options?
2: Well, we all have different levels of what we look at and and our different beliefs. But at the end of the day, does it matter? At the end of the day, we all still have the same thing in mind, is to make sure that we do the right thing at the right time. So it doesn't make any difference who you are and, and what you do. But do you go reach forth to know that there's a higher power that's greater than you are? And that's the whole story. So it doesn't make me a difference who you are and what you serve. At the end of the day, who gets the glory?
0: Well, Antoinette, uh, to sum up then, what do you really want to leave our audience with as they think about what they might ever do if they were confronted with such a threatening situation?
2: To allow them to know that in spite of the trials and tribulations that you may go through in your life, Just know at the end of the day that the glory goes to God. And at the end of the day, it's okay because what you go through today will bring joy to you tomorrow.
0: And what do you want to say to parents who are worried about their kids' safety in public places?
2: The thing about it is, is what I did for my kids and what I do for my kids and what I do for all the kids that I know. All we can do is pray over our babies, before they leave the house. Pray over your spouses before they leave the house and make sure that you are a family of prayer. That that way, no matter what comes your way, you'll be well equipped for it.
0: And then finally, I think your story is interesting because it addresses the riddle of why is there suffering? Uh, Why did you lead a life that had you moving around so much as a kid? Uh, Why did one of your sons um, struggle with disability? And why your marriage split apart? And I think that these are the things that drive people to desperation. Um, It sounds like it may have been among the kinds of things that Michael Brandon Hill was dealing with that drove him to desperation. So the role of suffering, people don't understand why they're suffering. What have you learned about that uh, through this experience of your life and this uh, dramatic moment?
2: Well, what I would say to people is to go and get my book because I talk about all of my suffering from the beginning of my childhood all the way up to that incident to allow people to know that everything that goes in your life, suffering, overwhelmness moments, desperate moments, trials and tribulation moments, Everything is for a purpose. I would not change anything from my son being disabled, from my ex-husband leaving me, from the abuse from my dad, and everything that I've gone through all over my life. I would not change any one of them. And the reason why I wouldn't is because every last one of those moments prepared me for August the 20th, 2013, when Michael Hill came into that elementary school A disturbed young man looking for hope, but feeling hopeless, needing someone to talk him down, to show him compassion and love. God used me for that day, and I would not change any moment of it. As much as I love my ex-husband, as much as I wanted my family to be together, we had been together 33 years. I have been with him longer than I've been by myself. So that was all that I knew. So that was why I tried to take my life and seen that there was no way out. But I know now today that every last moment of it helped me to save 870 children's lives, parents and teachers that day, August the 20th. And if I had to, I would do it all over again just for that moment for everyone to go back to their families to be able to know that everything is going to be all right.
0: So when other people are facing these hardships, it sounds like you're saying push past the pain, push past the pain, shrug the shoulders and say, there's a reason for this. I don't know yet, but I'm going to hang in there and find out.
2: Right. Because at the end of it, you have to push past the pain. It doesn't make the pain go anywhere. See, for me, I got pain every day. I got things that I'm up against. I got, I got good days and I got bad days. But at the end of the day, whose life am I going to change and whose soul am I going to save? I have to push past the pain in spite of what I feel like. Because at the end of the day, it's going to help someone else along the way. So it doesn't make it easy for me. It's just at the end of the day, when God calls your name or your number, will you be ready and can he use you?
0: And since you face faced this yourself, I feel like I can ask this question, and suicide is not an option.
2: Suicide is not. Suicide is not an option because I know when I was going through my moments, it just felt like that was the only way out for me. I didn't know any other way. But God spared my life because he knew the end in the beginning. And so I would tell anybody that seems to feel hopeless— just we know and remember that there is hope and that God loves them, and so do I.
0: Antoinette Tuff, co-author of the book Prepared for a Purpose, the inspiring story of how one woman saved an Atlanta school under siege. It's 240 pages published in 2014 from Bethany House Publishers. It's co-written with Alex Tresnowski. Antoinette Tuff, thank you so much for talking with me on Peace Talks Radio today.
2: You are so welcome, and you have a great and wonderful day.
0: In part, although she might not have been fully aware of it, what Antoinette Tuff employed to help talk down a potential school shooter near Atlanta that August day in 2013 was a technique that we've covered before here on Peace Talks Radio. We'll go back into our archive to revisit one of those conversations when we return right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can hear this episode again or any of the shows in our series dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. On today's show, we heard the story of Antoinette Tuff, the school clerk who, when confronted in the school office by a young man with an AK-47, helped talk him out of following through with a plan to kill others and himself, mostly by treating him not like a monster— but as a human being in need of some empathy. The tale reminded us of another story that came up in a 2013 conversation our co-host Suzanne Kreider had with nonviolent communication facilitator Jorge Rubio. Nonviolent communication prioritizes identifying one's own feelings and needs and empathizing with the needs and feelings of the other to accomplish successful communication.
4: The creator of nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg, has written a book titled nonviolent communication there's an astounding there are many astounding stories in the book but there's one that comes to mind from me yeah. around this and it's the story of a woman who was in a training she was in a situation where a man attacked her yeah. i believe with a
3: knife is yeah. that true she was uh, by some confusion in scheduling she had been left alone in the um, sort of uh, hostel for people with uh, drug addictions in canada so she was there and this man came in sort of really an intense state to to say it in that way. And he screamed, I, I, need, I want a bed. I want a bed. And she just said, sorry, sir, there is no beds. And I, I think she looked down to write the address of the other hostel so he could go there. And the next thing she knew, he had jumped over the table, uh, put her down on the floor, straddled her, put a knife to her throat and screamed to her, don't lie to me, there is, there is, there is a bet, and some other more choice language. And at that moment, she remember a joke. And the joke is, uh, well, it's, it's sort of a, a joke within the system. We use certain visual uh, reminders of, of these. But we're, we caution people in terms of not using but in front of somebody who is angry. Never put your butt in front of an angry person. B U T. That is a play of words, and I'm over-explaining it, of course. But the, the point is that if somebody's angry and you're going to give them explanations, you're only going to escalate the situation. So she stopped herself because that was her first reaction, to to explain to him, to advocate for her, her the truthfulness of her original message. She stopped, and she said, well, I'll try that thing, that NVC thing, which she had learned a week before or so. And uh, we use the following language for empathy. Are you feeling because you have a need? So she just guessed Sir, are you feeling really angry because you're really wanting people to tell you the truth? I might and he responds, I still in on her chest and with a knife on her throat. I might be living in the streets, I might not have anything to fall on, but I'm still a human being. I, you want me to understand that regardless of your circumstances, you want to be respected as a human being. You're right and and we asked her, Marshall asked her later, if she hadn't been terrified about this. And she said, no. Then from the moment that she started connecting, even in that precarious, it's hardly a conversation posture, but <laughs> even in that position, she immediately started seeing the human being. And a few minutes later, she he just relented or she requested him f- to move over. And he sent him on to the other hostel after explaining to the people there that he was, uh, he was coming and to be aware of his condition. Now, if she had used the but in that moment, she says that most likely he would not be telling the tale. So that's the power of empathy in those difficult situations. It allows us to see anger and rage not as the acts of an evil person, but as a huge opportunity for compassion. This human being is at a loss of resources and is trying in the best way he knows how to call attention to a need that is so unmet and about which he's so hopeless to meet that he does the best he can to call attention to that. And if we take the ride, it always leads to a de-escalation.
4: I'd like to get some uh, real world application of the four components. And we've got some folks in our studio audience If there's someone who'd be willing to share a conflict situation or scenario, if you could step up to the mic.
5: Hi, my question has to do with how your teachings apply at the community level. And let's say, for instance, that a a neighborhood is having a problem because there's a lot of uh, cars driving too fast, and they would like the city to put up a stop sign. And they have tried uh, going to the city and speaking their needs and being reasonable, and they've been ignored. And what they find is that if they act very angry and maybe picket or raise their voices in different ways, that they, get, they will get results that way. Mm. So how would you respond to that type
3: of situation? Well, my main concern is I would like the community to be able to be as creative as it is necessary, but I believe anger and dehumanization of those whose acts we do not enjoy actually disempower us. We lose resources in that very energy-intensive process of hating and getting angrier and angrier. I would like us to do our rage work. If you and I were in that community, one part of the meetings would be trying to clarify what are our needs, because the needs that are not met by not getting the response we wanted, if we really do that, do that, then we would have even more resources, our power of convincing, and also one crucial part of this, which is trying to connect respectfully with resistance to our wishes, so we want to understand what is preventing the council or the city council to respond to our to our uh, our requests, so the issue is Power of connection and how I experience getting angry and staying angry and coming for the trying to get my needs met from anger is a very, very um, dangerous uh, allocation of resources because it takes the energy from that place of creating mutual respect under difficult circumstances in the larger scale in the world a lot of what's happening is really deaf sides talking to each other where all we see is an escalation and escalation of more and more violence. We want to create the possibility of receiving even very difficult actions against our community and being able to sprout to action without forgetting the humanness of those whose actions we do not enjoy. I don't believe the contagious or infectious quality of the of violence will change in this world until we can do our respond to violence in a way that doesn't replicate it with them.
4: Yes,
5: go ahead. I'm wondering if this is really realistic, whether human beings have the capability of nonviolent communication. Because in my mind, we're... We're rational animals, and we tend to forget the animal part. And I was thinking while you were speaking of the situation I had at home that my neighbor's dogs killed a cat, and I was on one side of the fence hysterical trying to save the cat, and on the other side of the fence were the dogs doing dog things, right? This is the way dogs in a pack behave. Mm. And so I'm wondering if we're forgetting that animal part of our humanity that is the predator that is capable of that vi- violence and that when we look at our history as human beings it's been there forever
3: see i i've come after these years of work with uh, with nonviolent communication and uh, and uh, how people have reported to me from their lives really believe that if we create genuine understanding, and if we're really able to start creating systems based on respect and mutuality and requests and not demands, so there's no coercion and deep respect for each other, I have, I'm I'm hard-pressed to find any human being remaining in that gang pack behavior that you're describing. I believe that that is only possible as a reaction to a pre-existing inhuman system and that's when people end up behaving like that when i have seen people approach me in very difficult ways i have uh, found that a, a moment of deep, listen, deep deep listening will transform what seemed this animal predatory attack Human needs, for example, there is no need to have revenge. There is no need to punish. Those are, as I experience them, more cultural inventions. 10,000 years ago in the uh, the advent of agriculture, this thing was invented to think on the basis of moralistic judgments. Who's wrong? Who deserves to suffer? And who am I going to punish? Which is the pack behavior, at least is how I hear it. So I don't have an experience that anybody from any walk of life, stays in the tragic path when they are received with deep, respectful understanding, and when they can actually trust that we're equally interested in meeting their needs as much as we are in meeting our needs.
4: Do we have any other questions or comments, scenarios?
5: I seem to have trouble when people kind of give me unsolicited advice (laughs) (laughs) and especially out of the blue like I didn't even ask you know I guess that's what unsolicited advice is but you know just like whoa or or, you know you need you need one of these yes yes that's you know it's not as violent of a reaction but I've actually uh, reacted pretty violently to that
3: well and I'm very happy to know that you do because it immediately tells me that I am talking to a human being. You have a <laughs> profound need for autonomy and freedom. And you really do not enjoy getting education when people have not asked permission from you and when they have not uh, uh, addressed education in a way that would be useful or valuable to you. Most of human care, how people care for each other in this world, is expressed through education. And education before empathic connection usually stimulates what you just reported that you experience: resistance and disgust. We immediately go into protecting our autonomy. I don't want you to be the judge of what I'm supposed to need. I would like you to ask my permission if I want to hear more education. So sometimes in the workshops, people get one thing that really changes their life and it's those two components. Before you wanna educate somebody, respectfully connect with that person and ask them permission. Hey, when I hear you saying that you have a cold, I've I've used certain things lately that were useful to me. Would you like to hear about them? Oh, what a relief to give them a yes or a no before you blast them. (laughs) In some contexts, you cannot sniffle because suddenly within, you know, the next two minutes you will have all the herbs and all the homeoptherapy and all the exercises that are supposed to help with sniffling, and it does not sink in. So the giver of the education is trying to meet a need for support of others for contribution, and she doesn't get it met. And the receiver of education ends up in a quandary because they sort of see the care, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like something you want to receive.
4: How would you use the four components if you were the receiver of some unrequested advice? Well, it's tricky
3: because I would be so angry that I first have to attend to that. So I give myself self-empathy. So I close my mouth, notice that I am really up on arms, and then I I go into, God, I feel so enraged when people presume to know what is good for me. <sighs> I, I feel the emotion, and then I stumble into, oh, I'm feeling really angry because I have a need for autonomy. When you connect with the need, notice it's not just to recite it or to understand it, but you connect with the need Then there's a shift. It's a perceptible shift from the domination thinking to connection. Now I, ah, and once I connect with my unmet need for autonomy, suddenly I become curious as to what were the beautiful needs this human being was trying to meet by offering unsolicited advice. Oh, and now I'm very moved, and I would just that would be the first step. Once I've empathized with my need for autonomy, then I shift to be able to have the resources to understand what was the origin of the actions that I didn't enjoy. So I guess when you saw me sniffling, you felt really concerned and offered something that you thought could be useful for me. The person says, yes, thank you, that was my intention. And then I shift now to sharing with them how I would like to receive their gifts if they have them. So I shift to myself again and I say... You know, I'm very touched to hear that. But it was hard for me to receive it. And I wonder if you want to hear how I would suggest that you offer those things to me when you are experiencing a desire to contribute. So, again, I ask permission because now I want to educate. But notice I'm educating after I ask permission. And then I would tell them, when you see me, when you have any ideas of wanting to contribute to my well-being, it would make it easier for me to receive it if you ask me if I want to hear it. So there's a whole loop there. And notice, if we just stay in the reaction, which is that you get angry and express the anger, the person ends up hurt because they wanted to contribute, and you end up also disconnected. So it fosters disconnection. As you probably noticed there, it's a real dance between honesty and listening, expression and listening, and we have lost our ability to do what is the natural art of engaging through communication and presence.
4: How do you help people deal with anger? Anger is such a powerful force. Yes. What do we do with this anger?
3: Well, anger is a sort of a pet project of mine, since it seems to be my default emotion. So anger is truly a, a very, presents quite a challenge. To express your anger... To go and use words and actions to try to express your anger is always an incomplete expression of that anger. For many of us, the illusion, the terrible illusion is that when we have anger, we think we're very powerful. Men are particularly shortchanged in this regard because they think adrenaline equals power. I want to say that you are actually the most vulnerable in those moments. You don't know what you want. You're using energy in a way that that person is not even hearing what you say but trying to defend or counterattack. So you're really tragically using energy in a way that gets you farther and farther away from getting your needs met. So nonviolent communication helps us slow down the process enough so that we can do three things. First, detect that we are angry and therefore disconnected. Second, really engage with it, really feel what is that's going on inside me right now that I feel this rage, and if you do that, you stumble into your feelings and needs. That is the diagram of the process of empathy, whether it is empathy that other people give you, which is just simply presence and understanding, or the more finer or difficult art of self-empathy. First you notice that you're angry, so your breathing tells you, you feel hot in the face, whatever the signs for your, uh, yourself are of anger. And then you go into the judgments. Of course, we hoped you do this with your mouth closed. <laughs> <laughs> it does not help to express, uh, get expressive at this stage. Ah, I'm feeling frustrated and angry because I have a need for understanding. So that's the third step. Suddenly, it's not like you have to kickstart your feelings and needs. You discover them, they're always there. So once we get to the feelings and the needs, you are empowered again. Nonviolent communication is about really creating a model of a new definition of power in presence and communication.
0: To hear the entire conversation with Jorge Rubio and the one with Antoinette Tuff from earlier in the program, go to our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002. There also you can sign up for a free podcast and newsletter, order CDs, and helps support the series with a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit organization that produces the program, separate and apart from your public radio station. Visit peacetalksradio.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. Additional support from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows, Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.